The great comparative literature and mythology professor Joseph Campbell once said, follow your bliss and don't be afraid. And doors will open where you did not know they were going to be. The spirit of the podcast is to learn how former Wego Wildcats followed their bliss and for us to get inspired and learn from their stories. Welcome to Wego Places. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at West Chicago High School since 2001. Today's guest is Chance Coates from the class of 2013. Chance earned both his bachelor's and master's degree in computer engineering from the University of Illinois Champaign. While studying for his master's, Chance was a teaching assistant for computer organization and design, and he was a lecturing professor for VLSI, Very Large Scale Integration, where he introduced students to design principles applied to integrated circuits. Chance interned at Texas Instruments in product engineering prior to his internship at Apple as a graphics design engineer where he currently works in Austin, Texas. Joining us today is Chance Coates, class of 2013. Chance, what do you do? Hey, so uh, yeah, I am a circuit designer for Apple. I work on on the chips that end up in iPhones and iPads and watches. So Chance, how did you find your way to Apple? I mean, it's such an aspirational company most people most households have apple some apple product i mean how does how does a kid from west chicago get to to work at one of the world's greatest uh, technology firms yeah so uh i mean it's definitely been a long road and and one that i think a long time ago you probably wouldn't have guessed that i'd go to apple i mean i i still use an android phone and i'm <laughs> talking to you on my windows computer now so i, I think it's kind of funny but uh, yeah, so I, I sort of always liked computers and games and things like that. And at one point, I I was so cheap with building my computers that I wanted to get better performance, but I didn't really want to spend a lot of money. So I started using uh, like extreme overclocking, liquid nitrogen, dry ice. And this got me interested in sort of how computers worked and, and made me sort of want to understand what was going on inside them that you know, would make a game go faster or let you do more computations and things like that. So I sort of in high school focused on more technical things, math and science. And and then I went to the University of Illinois in 2000, fall of 2013 to start my uh, bachelor's in computer engineering. And sort of in this time, I, I did a couple internships um, at Texas Instruments in, in Dallas for a couple of summers. Um, and then I went to grad school to get my master's again in computer engineering. I, you know, it was something I, I knew what I wanted to do with my degree. And, and so it was something that would enable me to, to go a little bit further. Um, and I was able to teach during that time and, and do a little bit of travel for conferences and things like that. Uh, but then I landed an internship, uh, this past summer in 2018, um, with Apple down in, in Austin, Texas, working on, on the graphics team. Uh, and so I really enjoyed the people that I worked with. And and so, you know, when they offered me a job to come back, I finished up my last year of, of my master's and then came back. And now I work full time and I, I love it. If I could go back to what you were saying earlier about that moment where you went from just liking video games to cracking open a computer and start tinkering like, what was that like when you, how did you know how to proceed? What was that type of 
path of curiosity that you went down when you like made that leap from just being like someone who liked gaming and then really kind of went from just the gamer experience to just really getting into the hardware of the computer to um, really, as you said, enhance the experience? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And, and to be honest, I don't know if I have a great answer for you, but I mean, it, it was just one of those things where I, it started off, like I said, just wanting to get better performance. And so I was like, you know, I can, I can tinker with some of these settings and, and okay, if I turn this up and I turn up this voltage and I turn up this frequency, oh, and it does make a difference when I play games. Okay. Well, so wait a second, why did that, why did that make a difference? And, and so I started wondering, okay, well, I'm not just changing arbitrary settings and hoping that I get results, but what if I come at this in a more sort of calculated manner? And, and if I knew what these different settings were, then, okay, well, maybe I could take things a little bit further than I could have before. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's sort of what interested me. And, and once I had figured out a little bit more about, okay, well, if I tweak these settings or if I change this, then this happens. Once that started happening, I said, okay, well, how can I take this even further, of course? And and so that's when I decided to, I think I started with, with dry ice, with cooling things down. And, and then I said, ah, well, this isn't quite cold enough. I need to go even colder with, with liquid nitrogen. And so it was just a sort of steady progression of just wanting wanting to know more and sort of push the boundaries, I think. I think it's so neat that you get just the, the spirit of inquiry, how that just kept on driving you to, you get a new set of problems and then you'd kind of solve them uh, along the way. So, um, so at West Chicago, you then go off to the Uni- University of, uh, of Illinois. And what were the type yep. of, what was the type of coursework that you went from compute? Cause it's not, computer science it's computer engineering How, yeah, what are, exactly what's the right. difference between those two things i mean i i get it like maybe it's not just software but like what the type of lab work that you do what does that feel look like or at least on the on the undergrad side and then how does that look once you get into the grad school side yeah so that that's a, a really good question i think um really there's sort of this this spectrum that i kind of think of and there's there's really three three majors at the University of Illinois in particular, and at a lot of universities, but some other universities sort of group these together into one into one department. But really on, on one side of the spectrum, you have uh, electrical engineering. And this is, you know, very circuits focused, very focused on, on signal processing, um, on, on power and antennas and, and the physics of different devices. And then on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you have computer science which is really all about software i mean you don't care so much about the physical the physical realm you're thinking of algorithms and how can i efficiently solve this this generic problem or how can i prove that if i have a solution to one problem that's of a finite size that it's it's a solution for any problem of any size Um, so there's there's sort of the spectrum and in the middle i think it's computer engineering which, like you said, is is a mixture of software. I mean, I, I know how to code. I've, I've written code. I've worked on operating systems and things like that. And I also happen to know about how the circuits work and how the physics of the devices impact, you know, the way they run and sort of those questions that I wanted to answer when I was younger, more so. Um, and so I think it's an, an interesting perspective, and it's just one of, of many that you can have sort of along this, this spectrum where you have some knowledge of the hardware that your software is running on, and I think that gives you 
uh, a very good intuition in terms of writing better software, but also writing hardware that can then work with the kinds of things that people generally do in software, uh, which is a lot of what I do at work, for example. So I think it's kind of just a cool place to be. And the coursework that I did was um, very math and, and physics heavy in the first years. Uh, so that's sort of foundational to the kinds of problems that we solve. Uh, but then as you start to get into like the, the sort of junior and senior level classes, it abstract is maybe the wrong word, um, but there's sort of levels of abstraction where, you know, you start with your fundamentals and once you've grasped a lot of the, the bigger concepts, then you can sort of take a step back when you look at these problems. Um, and, and some classes will continue to dive in, in great depth into math and science and things like that. Um, and others, it's more, how can I solve this problem holistically? Uh, and so I, I thought it was a great balance of different things. So then you move on to kind of grad school and, and we'll get into like what you did in your internship at Texas Instruments and, and then Apple. But I, I was curious, like as you were working your way through uh, the grad school, how did you decide upon your research thesis uh, and how did you hone in on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, to be honest, if you were to ask me as a freshman or a sophomore in college, I would have told you I'm not going to grad school. And it wasn't really until my junior year that I realized that, okay, based on what I want to do, I should go, I should go to grad school. It's something, excuse me, that would help me out. And so once I decided to go to grad school, I picked an advisor uh, and, and my advisor was chosen based on the kinds of classes that he taught, but the research that he had done as well. And he was a very sort of like I described uh, computer architecture. He's a very sort of mid-level person. He, he sits in between electrical engineers and computer scientists, and he works on that, that combination of hardware and software. Um, and so sort of stemming from that, I, I had, a bunch of projects that I worked on with him. And, and from these projects, we then sort of took some things a step further. Uh, and that was what eventually became my thesis. And I, I was working with, with some other people in my lab on this and, and we submitted it to some conferences. Uh, haven't been accepted yet, but uh, the results are looking promising. Now we've discussed like the philosophy of science, you know, going back all the way back to the 2012, 2013 uh, school year. And, you know, one of the phenomenon of would we call it math or computer science, which is the concept of Moore's law. And I was wondering if you could oh, yeah. like kind of, because, you know, you're at a space in your research and in your job to see how the phenomenon of Moore's law is either holding up or is it kind of diminishing and all of that. So you, I, you, you could explain it much better than I can. How, what is Moore's law and, and where do you see it fitting in, in your kind of intersection of your work and research? Yeah. So, so Moore's law is, uh, this it really started as, as just something that made the presses by one of the, uh, co-founders of Intel. Everybody's heard of Intel. I mean, we, We've all, almost everybody's got an Intel CPU in their laptop and their computers and things like that. And uh, Moore's Law really started as, as an inherently physical trend that was picked up upon by, by one of the founders, Gordon Moore, uh, who the law is named after. And he noticed that 
because of the way they were shrinking the devices and the fact that when you make integrated circuits, you put them into these 2D planar structures. And if you can shrink how tightly you can pack these things in one dimension, well, when you integrate them in 2D, you gain the square of that. And so what basically what he noticed was that things, the things, the amount of transistors, the amount of tiny switches that they could put into a chip every, initially it was every 18 months, would double. And then every, now in, in these days, it's really now every 24 months or more realistically, um, every every 36 months, so three years now that things will double. But it was because of how they were shrinking these these tiny switches, these devices that are used to make up these incredibly complex circuits. And so over time, um, this was, I think, said in the mid or late 60s. And sort of since then, the trend has held, and it's mostly been driven by Intel, as you would expect, but it's this physical phenomenon where they've been shrinking these switches. And currently, we're sort of, we're reaching some fundamental limits on the materials that we're building these switches out of. And most of these things are fabricated in silicon. And so the the current technologies that you see, some of the big players in, in, in the industry are are Intel and Samsung and TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturer, and they are shrinking these devices down in, in say, one dimension to be on the order of nanometers, so times 10 to the minus 9 meters, so <laughs> very, very tiny, and they're almost to the point where they simply can't make these switches actually turn off and on. They can't control the switches anymore uh, because the size of the switches is only a handful of atoms across. And so they start to get in these quantum effects where they try to turn it off and quantum physics says that it's not really all the way off. Um, and so currently that's why Moore's law has been slowing down. If, if you follow a lot of tech news, I think um, there have been some headlines over the past few years about Moore's law being dead. Um, and a lot of different scaling that was observed in the seventies and eighties and nineties, and even into the early two thousands um, has since stopped. I mean, a lot of the scaling that, we've seen is really not taking place anymore. And uh, I think it's interesting, um, you know, this is all physically driven, but it's interesting from my perspective because I'm just one of the people who sort of benefits from, from this consistent process shrink that happens over time. I mean, the thought is that if you take the same amount of area, you can now do more stuff because what used to fit into a square millimeter now fits into something that's maybe half that size. So now you can use that extra 50% of the area to do more complex things. Or if you want to do the same thing, you can now shrink your chip and you can save money by making more of them at once. Uh, or you can decrease the power and get better battery life and things like that. So really, from a physical perspective, this trend has been sort of happening from the 60s or since the 60s when circuits were first being integrated and are now sort of it's tapering off. It's it's not really dead, but uh Companies are finding new ways to keep it alive. But really, it's just kind of cool from my perspective because I'm sort of riding the coattails and I get to make ever more complex things because the trend is still somewhat continuing. Uh, so it's, it's a cool place to be, I think. So basically, with the the um, the way we're looking at it is that does the where the, the sciences or where Intel is developing these uh, these chips that are at that nano level the the where your work is right now at Apple there's still a lot of 
like real estate before you guys even get to that level or even need it? Would that be a safe way of summarizing the uh, the, the still wide vista of of space left on of of the physical space where you have left to work with? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think uh, Apple's always trying to use cutting edge technologies, and and I would say that we are. Um, I mean, the things that I target when I make my designs are are certainly cutting edge from the manufacturers that are available. Uh, but that said, there's really a, a big difference between the commercial devices, these these tiny transistors that you find in in an iPhone or in a laptop or a desktop, and the research devices that are being made one at a time by you know people using scanning electron microscopes and and these minute probes to move things around that those research devices are the ones that are you know trying to figure out what we're going to use in 10 years uh, but those aren't things that you can manufacture in in a way that you can be profitable um, and so really there's there's a metric called yield in the semiconductor uh, industry and it's you know you you manufacture these chips from a silicon wafer it's a big circular disk of silicon that's really really pure and you manufacture these chips and say you you intend to create 100 of them, but in the end, only say 30 of them work. Your yield is 30%. And there's some for every chip because some are more complex than the others to, to manufacture physically. I mean, you're constructing these things from, from many layers. And the materials to, to make them are not cheap. So, you know, there's some cutoff where you have to have a certain yield or, or better in order for it to really make financial sense for you to manufacture these chips. Uh, and so a lot of the things that are, you know, like I said, in the sort of quantum realm of, of can we control this switch, those things are in an academic research space. Uh, the commercial devices that, you know, Apple uses while they're cutting edge are, are still, like you said, nowhere, nowhere really near that two or three or even 10 atoms thick level. Huh. It's, it's, it's so, it's mind bending when you, like, you, you almost lose perspective when you're thinking about things on that scale. And the idea that people could manipulate something at, at such a, a level like that, it's incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so cool. yeah. So, would you say, so, so back to your day job at Apple. So, let, let's say, like, uh, obviously, you don't have to divulge trade secrets, but like, like what you're working <laughs> on in uh, today, like, how soon would that be like what you're working on today? How soon would that be ready for market? Like when would we be buying what you're working on like this year? Yeah. So I, I can't really say exactly how long before things are productized, uh, but we're definitely working into the future. Uh, I mean, we sort of have to, what, what really happens is, you know, Apple, not to confirm their devices coming out, of course, but Apple right. sort of always releases new devices in September. And so if you say next year, there's going to be a new one. Well, all right. How many do we want to be able to sell on, on the first day? Or how many do we, do we want to take for pre-orders? And so they literally just start from, okay, well, this is when we're releasing. This is how many we want to have. And they work their way back. Okay. It's going to take us two months to manufacture them. And okay, well, we'll have to supply all the parts and that'll take another month to do. And okay, well, for the chips that we make or rather design, we have to get them manufactured and then we have to get them packaged and and ready to be assembled with everything else. And that's going to take, I don't know, nine months in order to have the volume that we'd like. And okay, well, if that's how long it has, then we'll have to start the design many months beforehand. And then we'll add some leeway just in case we don't meet deadlines or in case we do and we want to add extra features. 
And so they literally start from, okay, this is when we're releasing the next product and they work their way back until the design has to start. And uh, so that's sort of my life. It's, it's kind of interesting because you're, the things that come out are things that you've almost already forgotten about because you've been moving on to the next, the next product and, and the next project. And there's just always more to do. Well, it's a fascinating logistics challenge, you know, and like, I like that working backwards approach is interesting. It changes how you approach uh, a problem in, in such a way. Um, how, how does that, uh, it makes me wonder what's the, how, how do you conjure or identify the challenge of designing the next thing? Like how, how do you then receive feedback from what the previous model was? And then uh, how do you, like, what's the process by which you would go ahead and engineer or design the next model? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely, it's a really sort of complex process. That's to say it's years in the making is sort of an understatement almost. And, and the number of people and the number of man hours that go into, you know, just one, one product coming out or even just one part, one chip inside one product uh, is, is just so immense. Uh, we'll start out with, with a very early planning phase. And really this comes from uh, identifying what are sort of current trends in what users are doing. A lot of what we do at, at my, my job is we know that users will want to do this or this is what we would sort of like to steer users towards doing. Uh, and so as a result, we'll work with the software teams to figure out, well, okay, if they're going to do this more often than not, then how can we get the best performance doing that? And so that's a lot of what my team does. And so we'll start with, well, here's, you know, Candy Crush is maybe not very uh, commonly used anymore, but for a long time was sort of a, a golden standard for a video game that you play on your phone. And so we would have things like an internal Candy Crush that we can run on our hardware and see how it performs. And so we would use real world, real world metrics. And we have teams that will then look into what are sort of trends for programming, because I work on a, a GPU team that's technically programmable. Uh, and, and also from just a general performance perspective, you know, what direction should we be adding? And from here, we'll start to come up with the details of the design to meet those goals. Uh, we'll, we'll optimize the things that really need to be optimized, you know, the, the big hitters. Um, and then we'll sort of fill in the rest of the details. And it's, it's a very fluid process to be sure. Um, even, even when the specification for something that I'm building is, you know, written months ago, it's, it's updated fairly, fairly often weekly at least. So things are constantly in flux. Uh, but once we send things out, we'll get early chips back. We'll measure the performance and then see how it compares to what we what we had anticipated and then sort of make changes and adjustments to the things where, you know, because that's already been manufactured. We moved on to something else. Uh, we'll make adjustments sort of in flight. And yeah, that's that's why it's always in flux. It's it's a constant it's a constant battle to stay on top of the industry and the trends and things like that. Well, it's, yeah, I'm I'm thinking of a scenario in my mind. So I'm wondering if this is like a chicken or egg kind of uh, dynamic here. But let's say, for example, there was all of a sudden, like, which happens first? Did let's say there was a performance expectation by the consumer that they want they needed to play Fortnite on demand on like you know an iPhone or something like that? Did uh -huh. would the design 
have would you have anticipated the design or would the Fortnite programmers have understood what the current capacity was for the iPhone to do that like which which happened first like or is it kind of a give and take or like who who is drafting off each other in that like let, let's say if it was a a video game like Fortnite or there was a, some type of app that was like that which which one which is the chicken and which is the egg I suppose in that that dynamic yeah so it's definitely um that's a really good question. It's definitely, it's a give and take, but not necessarily always a deliberate give and take. So the, the software teams definitely work with developers of games and say, hey, you know, what do you guys want to be able to do for sort of upcoming features? And, and you know, hey, we'd, we'd really like to be able to do this with high performance, because if we can do that, then we can enable all these other features. But, oh, we don't really need to focus so much on this. And currently, you know, your program, programming language makes it really easy to do this, but we don't really do that often. So we need this to be a little easier. And so we'll focus on on things like that. And those are the sort of more forward looking things. At the same time, we'll also take current pieces of software. You know, so those are, those are sort of things going to be developed. We'll take current pieces of software and say, hey, it's doing a lot of this and this and this. Can we make those things faster? And we'll sort of you know, it's really a, a big game of averages here. The law of large numbers takes effect for sure. Uh, and we'll take as many sort of applications and, and use cases that are representative of what users actually do. And those are the things that we will try to emphasize and improve the performance of. So it's it's definitely something where developers say, hey, we want to be able to do this. Can you do it? But also us saying, well, what do people do the most and how can we make that better? So it's it's this sort of weird cyclical give and take, like you say. That's, that's so neat. And I, I was wondering, I was, I was thinking like kind of a full circle here, which is like middle school chance who is working around uh, playing around with his, his computer, you know, trying to find the best cooling solution for all that could he have dreamed that he would be working at Apple, you know, 12 years later? I I definitely would not have dreamed that I was working at Apple, uh, which I, I think is kind of funny. Uh, I used to really, really want to work at Intel. And I don't know if you've followed Intel very much lately or the whole Intel sort of versus AMD uh, fight that's going on in, in the tech world. Um, but for a long time, Intel because they owned their process and they owned the designs, just were leaps and bounds better than their competition. And that's why most people have Intel processors now. And very recently, AMD has sort of taken advantage of some complacency uh, that Intel's had, but also some unfortunate luck in their process side of things. Uh, and AMD has almost entirely caught up in their competition with, with Intel. Uh, and so for a long time, like I said, I wanted to be at Intel. And I didn't want to be at AMD because, like I said, for a long time, AMD was not very good. But now that they've sort of switched, all along, this this fight's sort of been happening. Apple, uh, maybe around 10 years ago, decided that they wanted to get into the chip game, too. And so these two giants, Intel and AMD, have sort of been fighting over the last 25 to, to 30 years, really. And a Apple recently just sort of got on the scene and decided to focus on the things that they think matter the most uh, and have gotten really good results from it. So uh, I don't think I would have dreamed that I'd be working where I am, but I am very much happy to be here. That's so cool. Well, now, 
what would you say are the still the things? I mean, this is kind of like a kind of an extension of what I just asked you. But what are still the things that excite you about your work? Yes, I think there's always new challenges. I, I think the very specifically the kind of work that I do is is a weird kind of puzzle in a way. I, I mean, there's I'm given a, a task, and you know, I have to perform something, and the specification is entirely functional. So it's like, these are your inputs and those are well-defined and these are your outputs and those are well-defined, but what happens in the middle isn't always well-defined. And so I think it's so interesting because there's this enormous design space, you know, there's all these different variables you can tweak and some of them will, will make your design larger, which is generally not good. You want to take up as little area as possible. You want to use as little power as possible. You want to do it as quickly as possible. And there's all these different trade-offs that you have to make. Okay, well, in this case, if I do this, I can save some area, but it's going to mean that I have to do things a little more slowly. And okay, well, actually, it turns out I can accept this increase in latency. I can hide that by doing something else. And so there's all these different optimizations that you do or can do. And I think it's all this, this huge puzzle that I get to solve. And so even though I've you know, worked on things that in some ways, in a lot of ways, some of the projects that I work on are similar to things that I've worked on in the past. I mean, I won't lie, computer engineers do just a handful of things, but they do them well. And in, in building circuits, that is. And every time I start a new project, there's always something that surprises me and always something new that I learn. Oh, I, I didn't know that I could do something in this way before. And oh, this seems like a better way to do something that I have done before, but I didn't have enough time to really fledge it out or flesh it out or or maybe I had to make other compromises because of something else and and this would have been a better solution so it's it's this very iterative process I would say where you're you're always trying to just improve and and learn new things and solve new puzzles and and make things faster right I love that so chance as we conclude this this interview I was wondering if you could give some advice to wildcats uh, that are going to be listening to this yeah so i mean i uh i don't know i wouldn't say there's i tried to do a lot of i try to do a lot of different things i think it's it's good to you know there's a saying um, jack of all trades and master of none but a lot of people don't say the last part which is but better than a master of one and so I've always kind of, you know, I didn't always know that, but it's something that I think I've been trying to do even before I knew that. And, and I think it's good to gain just a, a good breadth of knowledge. I mean, even if you know, okay, I'm really good at this and I really like this, that's good. You should, you should feed that and pursue it. But I think there are other things that, you know, if you're not good at them or you've never tried them before, things like that, that sort of widen your perspective and you just can know about so many things. There's there's just so much to know out there. And with, you know, especially the Internet, I mean, I've been very lucky to have grown up with basically all of the knowledge that I want or could ever want at, at my fingertips, uh, and especially now. And so I, I think it's there's just so much out there to learn. And I think it's good to to know what you're good at. I've always sort of known that I I like engineering. I like problem solving math and in science, but also trying those other things like like sports and and hanging out with your friends and, and pursuing those other things that uh, you might not be good at. Uh, I think those are, those are just as important and, and they broaden your perspective going forward. That's so great. 
Chance, thank you so much for this interview, and I'll probably come back and interview uh, you in a couple of years when you're working on the next really cool project uh, and see where you're at. So thank you so much. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you very much for uh, for having me on here. It's been great catching up with you. Okay, thanks, Chance. Thanks for listening to We Go Places. If you know of a great guest for this podcast, send me an email at b-t-u-r-n-b-a-u-g-h at d-9-4 dot o-r-g.